This morning, we continue in our uh, walk through the book of Romans. Uh, we are in chapter 5, and we're looking at verses 12 through 17. And I, I just want to set up a little bit of the flow, of, particularly of this section of Romans. Uh, the scholars are, are pretty clear that, uh, well, Paul is almost breathless. He is speaking so quickly. One can only imagine uh, the scribe desperately trying to keep up with uh, Paul's thoughts. And uh, I, when I was younger and thinking about ministry, there was uh, the pastor of our church uh, was a uh, wonderful man and uh, very in shape. In fact, he'd been a uh, college, actually Washington uh, State starting quarterback. He had been an NFL uh, draft. Uh, he was drafted into the NFL as a quarterback, and uh, he wasn't that far from uh, being, you know, that level of athlete. And uh, I wanted to talk to him a little bit about uh, seminary and about maybe being called into ministry. And I said, you know, Kevin, can I get some time with you? And he said, sure, I'm a little bit tight, but you can come and run with me. I said, great, I'll be coming off of work. He's like, well, don't forget to bring some tennis shoes. I'm like, nah, it's fine. I've got, I wear combat boots. I'll just, you know, at that point, a couple of 20 year old, I'm pretty sure I'll just keep up with this guy who's in his thirties. A lot of silliness and arrogance. Anyway, we're trying to have a conversation, and about the third lap around the track there at Covenant, uh, around the soccer field, I am trying to talk to him about seminary, and I'm probably cutting a third of the words out just because I can't breathe. I'm missing words, uh, and he had to fill in all of the three and four letter uh, words as I tried to communicate. It's a little bit like that. Paul is so passionate about what he's saying, so much uh, is being jammed into a short section of scripture that there is a great deal that is missing only in the sense that he expects us to reflect on and to understand that everything he's saying is richly uh, grounded in the full understanding of God's covenant faithfulness and the story of Genesis and the story of God's creation and his giving to humanity all of the blessings and all of the joys of being created in his image and called to be his hands and feet in creation as uh, his children and as those who have the freedom and the joy to be creators, small c, like the great creator who made everything. And so we enter into this time in Romans. We are going to be in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 17. And the fact that for many of us, when we read this, it just feels halting. It feels like there's stuff missing. I guess my illustration was really to affirm to you that you should feel that way and that that's not an accident. Uh, but that Paul is uh, writing quite quickly, or at least dictating quite quickly. So let's uh, join in now with Paul, starting in verse 12. We'll go through verse 17 this morning. Hear now God's word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, 
For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where the law, where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more would those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that we would in this time slow down. Lord, add delight in all of the deep truths in these short few verses. Lord, we thank you for the excitement. We thank you for the joy. We thank you for the power of the gift that allows us to see creation even a little bit like Adam and Eve first saw it before the fall. The hope, the joy, the eternal presence and fellowship with you. Lord, we pray that as we meditate on those truths this morning, that we would have our vision, particularly in this time, renewed to have a glimpse of what is coming around the corner, what we will see when the fog clears, what we will know in the brightness of full day, even as we see slightly in the first rays of morning light. We pray that we would rest in the gift this morning and that whatever is said that is not useful or beneficial for the building up of your people, Lord, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So you can tell, even the way that I read the text, that there is a, a real sense of uh, energy in Paul's writing here in Romans, and that he is quite passionate to explain what it means for Christ to be the transition, for Christ to be the answer to the problem. First of all, the problem of sin. And so this morning we're going to look at uh, the trespass and what Paul means here. Second of all, we're going to look at why it's important to go all the way back to Abraham. And then what does it mean for us to look forward to Abraham's, I mean, sorry, to Adam's, all the way back to Adam, and all the way to look forward to the unification of all of Adam's children in Christ, and then how we can, again, enjoy the richness of this gift in this day. So first, uh, what does it mean there in verses 12 uh, to begin with? Therefore, sin came into the world through one man, 
and death through sin, and so death spread to all people because all sinned. Well, again, our context is already Romans chapter 1, and Paul has already unpacked for us the uh, truth that both Jew and Gentile, whether they uh, had the law or not, all had an opportunity to know God. There is some part of the human uh, anatomy and the human soul that has an innate knowledge of the divine. Not only that, you can see it in creation. And so we have to work consciously uh, to hide from view, to minimize the impact of the divine in all that is seen in his creation. It is a conscious effort, Paul says, for us to deny the truth of who God is. And so that truth uh, that we deny who God is started, of course, in Adam and in Eve's sin against God. And that temptation, did God really say, is God really reliable? Is God truthful? And Adam and Eve were at least entertained by the idea or entertained the idea and took advantage of uh, the seed that was planted by the snake to actually believe that God was far from being transparent, far from being a, a gift-giving God, was actually a God who was holding something back, who was opaque, who was untruthful. And sin starts with the denial of God's goodness in being a God who is open to his people and a God who gives good gifts to his people. And so through Adam's one denial of the gift-giving, transparent God in believing that God was, in fact, different, telling a lie about the nature and character of God, sin entered the world. We so often hear that it was just the grabbing of an apple. That is so far from the weight of the reality of what it is for human beings to buy into the lie that God is not who he reveals himself to be in his character and his nature that when we read Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and we see the creator of everything turn it over to his people, that the obscenity and the horror of those created beings beginning to doubt whether or not their creator was generous, was loving, was gracious, to deny their character. As parents, we sometimes feel the weight when we discipline our children and our children in their anger and in their frustration lash out and say something completely horrible like, you don't love me. And there are few things that are more hurtful to a parent than the child's lie in their anger and hurt to calling into question the love and care of their parent. That is a small emotional uh, analogy to the weight of the creator of the universe hearing from his children. You don't love me. You've hidden things from me. You never give me good gifts as they stand in the midst of the garden itself where they walk with him in the cool of the day. 
So there is great weight to Adam's sin. It undid a fundamental understanding of who God was, and it interjected a lie into our thoughts and our hearts that we have a God who is unreliable, untruthful, and above all else, stingy. One who does not give good gifts. And so because of this sin, it, it, it permeated all of humanity, that root of doubt, that root of rejection of the goodness of God, believing we could only trust ourselves. Verse 13 then moves us on, for sin was indeed in the world before the law. Now what does that mean? But it wasn't counted uh, in relationship to the law. Well, what that means is if people hadn't received the law, that folks who were serving goat in a white sauce were not being held liable for cooking a kid in his mother's goat. Or if you wear a polyester blend pants, you're not being held accountable for mixing two kinds of cloths. There are certain ways in which the law of God and the particularities of God's covenant with Israel created additional revelations about God's nature and character and what it meant to be distinctly his people that, of course, those who haven't received some of the particularities of the covenant law were not being held accountable to violating those particular laws. Sin wasn't counted in the same way. The general rejection of God, of course, was counted. That rebellious heart that makes us our own God was, of course, being seen by God, and folks were held accountable for it. But remember, Paul is talking to Jewish believers and Gentile believers, and he is helping the Jewish believers understand the universal nature of sin and at the same time the difference of what it meant to be the people by which the Messiah would come and the very particularities of what it meant to be his covenant people and the revelation of God's moral character and some of the distinctive laws of the covenant. So yet uh, death reigned from Adam to Moses because there was the initial and fundamental sin. And then Moses symbolizes the giving of the law at Sinai, even over those whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So sin becomes broader and deeper, and it permeates all of creation. And we've already heard in the beginning of chapter 5 that we have peace with God. Well, what does that peace look like? How does that peace come? And that's where, of course, where Paul jumps right now into verses 15 and following. And again, it was hard. I don't know if you have the NSV uh, translation. Uh, there is a lot of repetition in this text, and it is brought out faithfully by the ESV, and we have in the ESV five times where the word gift is used. Uh, free is not actually in the Greek text. Uh, it, it, uh, it strikes me as a rather American uh, addition that we have to put the word free in front of gift as if uh, perhaps uh, the translators moonlight as uh, copywriters for maybe one of those um, timeshare things where if you come and hear our presentation about a timeshare, you will get a free gift. Uh, that is not what Paul is talking about. 
uh, and it seems somewhat distracting to keep putting the word free in front of it. A gift by its nature is one that costs the person giving it, but is free to the one receiving it. And we know through this text that it is, of course, at great expense that the gift is given. But why? Why go back to Adam? It's not just because of his sin. It is because the very nature of the gift itself is to be understood in the fullness of creation. As we've said several times, the, uh, the first people who received this uh, sermon, this, this text from Romans uh, to the Roman church, they were asking the question, how is it that Gentiles and Jews function together in a community of faith? What's the basis for our relationship? How are we seen to be equal before the Lord? How is this to be? Because for quite some time, there has been this distinct Jewish group of people who were God's covenant people, and they were unique, and they were special. And how does that or does it not translate into this new thing called the church? Are there advantages to being Jewish? Does that make the Gentiles second-class citizens? Are the Jews second-class citizens? Because many of them haven't acknowledged the Messiah. How do we handle these distinctions? And Paul is working diligently to help the church understand its unity in Christ, which both recognizes the different histories between the Gentiles and the Jews, and at the same time is building a new community of faith. Why go back to Adam? because all were one in Adam. It's before the division of covenant and non-covenant people, before the Abrahamic covenants, which were always meant to be a blessing to all the nations. But there was a division that happens when God sets Abraham apart as the one through whom the Messiah would come. It did make a Jew-Gentile distinction. And so for this church needing to know how it can be unified again, Paul goes back to Adam. It's not just about the Jewish failure to follow the covenant given through Moses, but we know that all are justified in Abraham because Abraham is that first bridge, a Gentile who became the first Jew, who became the one through whom the covenant was administered. But his forefather is Abraham, and that's where the problem started. But that's also the hope to which we all long to return. The hope when we are one people. Some of the old hymns use the phrase that Christ bled for all of Adam's helpless race. It is that unity of being one race in Adam, no longer divided ethnically or socially, and one faith united under one king. The, unique, the unity and the equality for the people in the church at Rome comes from the fact that they all share Abraham, uh, Adam as their progenitor, as the great father of all humanity, and therefore the one whose sin impacted not just the Jewish people, but all humanity. And therefore, Jesus was going to have to fix not just the Jewish sin, but the sin of all people, the sin of all of Adam's children. 
That's why we have to go back to Adam in chapter five, why it's not enough just to go back to Abraham. But we have to be reunited as a people. And again, that is always the great calling of the church and the reason we grieve so deeply that for one reason or another, the church still struggles to this day to be a place where economically and racially and socially we all worship together. It isn't a unique problem in the United States, although we grieve that this is the most racially and economically divided hour in the American week. But it's also true in every nation around the world. We hear often of the missionaries in India struggling to put a church together that unites various castes because that hangover from Hinduism and the Indian culture that just can't imagine that you can have an untouchable and a Brahmin caste in the same worship service. Or the struggles that we remember in various ethnic and tribal wars in Africa where one tribe slaughters another tribe and yet both claim to be deeply impacted by Christianity. Paul is struggling mightily to give us an anchor from which to push against the waves and the overwhelming power of the world which would seek to divide us into ever smaller groups, economically, socially, subculturally, and keep God's church separated and divided, particularly on its days of worship. What is the reason that Paul can say that Gentiles and Jews in Rome should worship together. We're all Adam's kids. We all struggle with the same sin. The gift was given to Adam. What gift? Why go back to Adam when we talk about the gift? It may seem plausible to go back to Adam to think about the nature of the sin. We all remember that. But trust me here, Paul is not just thinking about Adam's downside, Adam's sin, Adam's brokenness. His context for the gift is the gift given to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. Let us make them in our image. And then what does he say to the male and female? I give you all of this this is now all yours. Everything I have made is now at your disposal. All of creation, you will now, again, have dominion, but dominion in the context of being small sea creators, in the context of having the ability to shape and form it, to build on it and to beautify it, to delight in it, and to use it to bring even greater glory to the big C creator, to our heavenly father who made us in his image. Why does, Adam go, why does Paul go back to the gift? It's because what the gift is, is far more than a free gift given out at a timeshare 
presentation. It is a restoration, not of a way to get out of creation, but a way to see creation restored. That's why in chapter 8, Paul is going to talk about how all creation groans and looks forward to the day. You see, it's not just the math of 2 plus 2 equals 4. That is to say, if I'm given a math test, and on that math test, which when I just went through my dyslexia testing, and I, I had, there was a math section, and I think I got about to sixth grade math before I was done. So I could do the 2 plus 2 equals 4. And in a math test, the only purpose of the answer 4 is to prove that I know what 2 plus 2 is. And there's some ways in which this morning I would suggest that the Reformation, in its attempt to find an answer to the problem of uh, the Roman church turning salvation into works, and the problem of trying to get out of purgatory and into heaven, that there was a real and right way where the Reformers saw that in Paul, 2 plus 2 equals 4. It is by free grace. There is no works that can be added. Therefore, the math of salvation, my soul being at peace with God, the answer is that only comes through the gift of God's grace. And so that is a right and true answer. But Paul was not giving a math test. And so for Paul, 2 plus 2 equals 4 is perhaps more in the context, let's say, of doubling a recipe. And so if I can't do 2 plus 2 equals 4, the food won't taste good. Or if I'm doing the math on a seating chart for a wedding, and I need to figure out how many people I can put around how many tables, and what we want to do is keep Uncle Fred away from Uncle John, because if they start talking about politics, this wedding will be anything but pleasant. And so the math implications of being able to do the math and keep people sitting around tables that are uh, good for fellowship, the math of 2 plus 2 equals 4 could be the difference between a peaceful wedding reception and one that gets raucous in all the wrong ways. You see, for Paul, the gift, the gift of salvation by faith alone, the gift that Abraham was the first one that he used as an illustration to say, see, Abraham was saved by faith and not by the law, the, is not merely what happens to my soul upon death and how God will or will not count me righteous in his sight. But because that math is true, and because I'm righteous in his sight, I therefore have the opportunity to see all of creation's math transformed. So that in and through the world, the gift that was given to Adam, which was a relationship with God and a perfect relationship with creation and his fellow humans, is being restored the gift that Jesus gives us is no less than our personal salvation, but it is a gift reminiscent of everything that was given to Adam and Eve, all of creation. That's how generous he is. He simply didn't give me back my life rather than death. He gave me back my life plus all of the riches of Adam and Eve, 
all of the riches of creation, all of the riches of what it meant to be co-heirs, sons and daughters of the Most High. It's no less than two plus two equals four, but given that math in the real world, not just as an answer to a problem, but as the math of restoration, the gift, the gift is a restoration of Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 through 2-3. I've already given the teaser for Romans 8, but that's, that's why Romans 8 bothers to mention creation. The groaning will stop. The restoration will happen. And the gift of life capital L, for all eternity, is restored. That's why Paul can say that the gift is greater than the transgression. The transgression robbed for a season the reality of fellowship with God. It gave a marred sense of free will. It, for a season, robbed us of our joy in creation so that we all shelter in place because some virus that is a part of creation is hunting us. That's not the way creation was supposed to interact with humanity. It's groaning. But that is not the way creation will interact with God's people for eternity. The gift is greater than the transgression because the gift is a restoration and the transgression could only mar it for a season, could only break it, but it took a greater one to restore it and to restore all of it. The gift is greater than the transgression, verse 10 uh, of chapter 5 that we looked at last week, as I expressed then, is a clear declaration of Paul's belief that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, that he is God incarnate. And without missing a beat, in verse 17, Paul calls Jesus a man. For Paul, he holds in tension the reality that God is incarnate in Jesus the King, the Messiah. And at the same time, he will without missing a beat, say, the man Jesus. Both are true. We struggle with that uh, understanding, especially if we're impacted by Greek thought. These can't both be true. Paul has no problem. God himself became man. And therefore, if God, who was the creator, is the one that gave his life and his blood, if the creator gave his life for the created, of course that's greater than the creation endlessly dying for itself. The creation can never atone for its own failure. Only the creator can restore it. And this creator did so by giving himself and actually putting himself under the hands of his rebellious creations. The gift is greater because the creator itself becomes the payment for the gift. We have received a gift with power greater than death and greater than decay. Verse 17 is clear. 
that we have received the abundance of grace, a gift of right standing, and a reign of the King Jesus. What do we do with that gift? Of course, you know that I never want to discourage our celebration of our personal salvation and our personal relationship with Christ. And to delight in that gift and to, in days when we feel the weight, the weight of the world, the weight of our own bodies getting older and wrestling with us, our younger bodies not growing fast enough as we struggle against what it means to be children rather than parents, doesn't matter what season you're in, the personal relationship with Christ gives you a comfort and a hope and a peace. But as you've heard me say more than once, if that's all the gift is, it might be part of the reason we're rather isolated and rather divided. But if that gift assumes a restoration, a restoration of all of Adam's children, no longer divided economically and racially and culturally and socially, struggling together to push against the world's pragmatism that says these divisions will never be defeated. Just give in. Plant churches for the wealthy, plant churches for the poor, plant churches for the German and for the Dutch and the French and the English. Keep them all separate, keep them all happy, and we'll wait till Jesus returns. That's not Romans. That's not Paul. And that's certainly not the gift that Jesus came to bring. He came to bring the gift of all of his children, all of his creation, united again in the common purpose to sing his glory and reflect his power. What do we do with the gift? How big do you think your gift really is? And then as we gather together, how powerful is it when we live out that gift as his people in and through this world? My encouragement, uh, although uh, not as good a question as I'm sure would have been formulated had I asked artists to formulate it for me, is what do you think the gift really is? How big? When you reflect on this passage, what do you think the gift is? And then as you contemplate scripture and prayerfully wrestle with what you think the gift is, what is scripture saying about that gift? How can you use that gift would be the second question. And then second, thirdly, moving forward, how does CVP use the great gifts that God has given in each person on this Zoom and in the resources that God has provided? How do we use the gift for the community that God has placed in us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We thank you that in and through all of this, you delight to give good gifts to your children. We don't always understand uh, what to do with the gift. And we don't always, uh, Lord, understand how amazing uh, the potential of this gift is. 
but we pray that as you reveal it in your time, as you are loving and patient, as you disciple and encourage us, that you would be glorified even in the process of us learning what the gift means and how it can be used. For your glory and your honor, in Christ's precious name, amen.